You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open the word of our God together. We turn to the prophecies of Zechariah chapter 13. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother to whom... He was born, will say to him, you must die, because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I am not a prophet. I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. On this Palm Sunday, I preach to you from the Word of our God as you find it in Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. Here is an event which happens between Palm Sunday and Good Friday as the events of that last week come to a climax, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, Do what you came for. Then the man stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? 
At that time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, Last week, the National Geographic Society announced to the world with a great deal of fanfare that it had come into the possession of an ancient manuscript dated around 300 A.D. And what is of particular interest with regard to this manuscript called the Gospel of Judas is that it claims to describe the relationship between our Lord Jesus Christ and Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. And it even goes on to allege that Judas was only following the instructions of our Lord when he betrayed him. In other words, this gospel says Judas was simply following orders. He was not such a bad guy after all. He has actually been greatly misunderstood by the Christian church and by many others. In short, Judas has for a long time already been on the receiving end of a very bad rap. And Judas needs to be rehabilitated. Interesting, but is that true? Does what is called the Gospel of Judas tell the real story? Liberal scholarship is quick to answer yes. But nevertheless, others urge caution. And well, they might. For the fact of the matter is that church historians have known about the so-called Gospel of Judas already for centuries. Why, already way back in 100 A.D., the Western Church Father Irenaeus called it, in one of his writings, a victitious history. And so all in all, you have there a warning not to jump on the Gospel of Judas bandwagon. And the same goes for other works that claim to have the real inside story on the life of the Lord Jesus like that runaway bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, a book written by Dan Brown and scheduled to be a movie anytime soon. You see, the number of books about Beloved which claim that the New Testament has it all wrong are many. And yet, when truth be told, none of them can really compete with it. For thousands of years already, persecutors and critics have done their best to undermine the New Testament. But nevertheless, it still stands. It still stands as a testimony to the truth. And it stands also as a reliable witness to the life, ministry, sufferings, death, and resurrection of our Lord. So, as Good Friday and Easter approach, let us not doubt, but rather turn with me to Matthew 26, 
And to a closer look at what happened to our Redeemer during that special week long ago. I preach to you on the following theme. Our Savior is seized and arrested. And we're going to see that his arrest involved a kiss, a sword, and a reprimand. Well, beloved, the events of that last week follow quickly the one after the other. Palm Sunday, the Passover is eaten and prepared. The denial of Peter is foretold. The Garden of Gethsemane is experienced in all of its agony. And now it is on to the betrayal and to the arrest. Why, there is really actually no time even to catch one's breath. Matthew recounts that while the Lord Jesus was still speaking to his disciples about what had happened in the garden, he hears his betrayer coming. Judas is approaching. And he's not alone. No, he is accompanied by a large crowd. And that crowd, we are told, is is literally armed to the teeth. Everyone has either a sword or a club. And who are all of these people? Matthew tells us that many of them were sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. One commentator says, tongue-in-cheek, that they were sent by the senior pastors and the lay leaders. In other words, the temple guards and members of the local Jerusalem constabulary were sent out. Finally, the people in authority see their chance. The moment that they have long been waiting for and scheming about has arrived. Either that or they simply cannot wait any longer. It's now or never. And so this whole crowd of people approaches and draws near to the Lord Jesus. But then as they do so, something astonishing happens. We're told that Judas says, Greetings, Rabbi. Interestingly, Judas is one of those people who never calls him Lord or God or Messiah. No, it's always Rabbi. Or teacher. Well, still, the fact that Judas greets him like this doesn't contain the real surprise. No, that is found in something else. It is found in what he does next. He kisses the Lord Jesus. And actually, the original makes clear that this is no quick, perfunctory, glancing kiss. No, it makes clear that he kissed him warmly. That he did it with intensity. You might say Judas put on a real show of affection. And why did he do it so dramatically? Well, part of the answer lies in the fact that this was an agreed-upon signal. Matthew says the betrayer had arranged a signal with them, meaning the crowd. And he even said explicitly, the one I kiss is the man, arrest him. Well, when the crowd sees Judas approach, one person in particular and plant on him a noisy kiss, it knows instantly, this is the man we have come to arrest. 
But of course, that is not all that is at stake here. There is more. Consider that kiss deeply for a moment. In those days, and even in today, you might say, in the Middle East, it is not unusual to greet someone with a kiss. You did that kind of thing, and you still do that kind of thing with relatives and friends, teachers and other notables. But why did you do it? Well, you do it as a show of respect and of esteem. You do it as a sign of love and devotion. Well, simply you can say that a kiss stands for everything that is supposedly good and warm and worthy. It's the most positive thing. Some people would say that it's the clearest expression of affection that is there in our human society. When in love, you kiss. You kiss deeply. And you kiss often. Well, now what happens here? Here, beloved, we see the perversion of a thing of beauty. Here we see a kiss besmirched and befouled. Here we see kissing turn ugly. What else can you call a kiss of betrayal? Here we have our Savior grossly dishonored. Way back, you may recall in Psalm 2, the command goes out, kiss the Son. But then that kiss is meant to be a kiss of surrender and of submission. But here, when the Son is kissed, it is a thing of revulsion, of outrage. Judas manages to take one of life's most precious actions and he pollutes it. He twists a thing of beauty. Literally, he makes us gag. And should that surprise us? Not really. For earlier we were told that as the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Who was always lurking around behind the scenes? Who was there at the beginning of our Lord's earthly ministry trying to detour him? Who is there throughout his ministry sending one evil spirit after another to confront and to resist him? Who is always there to exploit the disciples of Jesus when they say too much like Peter or are weak like James and John? Who has Judas firmly in his grip? And none other than the devil. And what is his intent? It is to undermine and defeat the Christ, to derail the kingdom, and to stop God's redemptive program in its tracks. Yes, and as he attempts to do so, he distorts and he twists and he spoils and he perverts everything in his path. A kiss 
A universally recognized gesture of beauty lies ruined in his wake. And not just a kiss. Look around you in the world today. Do you not see Satan's work of perversion at work? What is more needed than healthy relationships? But where are they? And what is more beautiful than love? But who today knows its true meaning anymore? And what is a greater source of happiness than a fine marriage? But who still longs for it in a world filled with casual sex and common law arrangements and hollow commitments? And what is more beneficial to a healthy society than stable families? But who still realizes that today? You see, beloved, that rotten kiss should remind us and warn us about the one who perverts everything. The kiss of Judas is really the kiss of Satan. But there is more. For no sooner does the sound of this kiss finish resounding through the Garden of Gethsemane and the Lord Jesus speaks. He commands Judas, friend, do what you came for. That's one rendering. It's also possible to turn it into a question, friend, why have you come? Or even into a statement, friend, I know what you are here for. Whichever it be, it is probably none of these that catch us off guard. Now, we're probably off guard by the designation friend. Judas, some friend he is. And yet we should not interpret this as a word of casual friendship No, actually, it's a word of loving rebuke. No doubt Judas expected to be called traitor or betrayer because those words fit the deed. But to be called friend, that hurt. That truly hurt, especially because the thing that he was doing was so far, far removed from any friendship. Indeed, at least as far as Judas is concerned, it has nothing to do with friendship and everything to do with hatred. But with Jesus, there is still love. I dare say there is still love even for Judas. But of course, we cannot stop there. For suddenly the scene shifts, the men with Judas step forward, lay hands on Jesus and arrest him. But that is not all, for as they proceed to do so, one of the followers of the Lord Jesus, we are told, reaches for his sword, pulls it out, and lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. No doubt he was aiming for his head or for his neck, but he missed And he only got an ear. And what now? Will suddenly a full-stage confrontation erupt? Will blood soon begin to flow in the Garden of Gethsemane? 
Now for instantly our Savior intervenes. And he tells his impulsive follower, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Here the Lord Jesus makes it very clear that he will have nothing to do with armed resistance. He doesn't want swords or clubs to be used to defend him. He doesn't see swords as instruments to bring on and to advance the kingdom of God. His kingdom cannot be built by force, coercion, bloodshed, threats, or even terrorism. And yet, beloved, how often his followers have forgotten that. The great church father Augustine forgot this when he called on the emperor to use force to deal with the Donatists. And the popes and the kings of the Middle Ages were no less forgetful when they launched the great crusades. And the priests of the Inquisition also didn't get the message. Swords may win battles, but they lose wars and hearts and kingdoms. Jesus says, if you live by the sword, you will die by the sword. Those are the words of our Savior. And of course, they apply to all of us, first of all, but not only to us. Also, the followers, the radical followers of Muslim or Islam would do well to heed these words. In the end, the terrorists in Iraq and the Taliban in Afghanistan will not win. In the end, they will discover what every revolution discovers, that ultimately it devours its children. Force builds nothing lasting. If it did, our Savior would be using it. But the fact of the matter is, he has force in abundance at his very disposal. Do you think, he says, that I cannot call on my Father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? At the snap of his fingers, 72,000 angels will instantly appear and do battle. But that is not his way. That is not how the kingdom will be built. As he adds, but how then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? You see, the scriptures are full of the fact that the kingdom will not be built by a sword, but rather by a cross. Only the sufferings and the deaths of our Savior will be able to deal with the needs of his people. Only a his sacrificial deaths can make real atonement. And only our mediator's death 
can build anything of lasting significance. The disciple who drew his sword needed to realize this. Indeed, beloved, this is something we all should get through our thick skulls. Sometimes Christians do think that the way to build the church and to increase the kingdom is through various forms of coercion. Of course, swords are out. But what about holding before others the dreaded specter of hell? What about hard words or dire warnings? What about mind games filled with control issues? What about threats of ostracism or deeds of shunning? There are far too many times when we should be relying on prayer and the Spirit to change hearts and lives. But instead we rely on angry words and intimidating postures and harsh admonitions. Whoever said that we cannot use various forms of arm-twisting to turn others into law-abiding and believing Christians? It's all so tempting. But yet it's also doomed to failure. Christ Jesus says ever so clearly, you follow the way of the Scriptures, which is the way of prayer and of the Spirit. That's the way to build the kingdom and gather the church to the glory of God and not the way of force. And beloved, we need to heed all of that And we also need to heed those last words of reprimand that you find in our text of this morning. You'll notice that Jesus addresses himself to Judas and he addresses himself to his errant sword-swinging follower. And next he addresses himself to the crowd. What does he say to them? Well, listen, am I leading a rebellion, people? Am I leading a rebellion that you have to come here with swords and and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. How those words must have stung The crowd is treating him as if he is the greatest terrorist who needs to be confronted by a massive show of force, subdued by a whole array of weapons and taken away in chains. But when and where did he ever breathe out threats? When and where did he ever take up arms? When and where did he ever seek to undermine the power of Rome or even the power of the Jewish leadership? And besides, when did he ever go into hiding? Every day they knew exactly where they could find him. They could find him in the temple. And every day they knew exactly what he was doing there. He was teaching the people. 
And in actual fact, the reason why they timed things as they did has nothing to do with him being dangerous. It has everything to do with the people. The leaders feared the people. They might come to his defense. And so they plot and they scheme and they arm and they maneuver and they march and they arrest and they think that that once they have hold of him, they will win. They will have contained the threat. They will have stopped the Galilean in his tracks. But little do they realize that what they're really doing is serving the higher purposes of God. The Lord Jesus says, but this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Had Isaiah not prophesied that he would be oppressed, afflicted, and led away like a lamb to be slaughtered, And had Zechariah not predicted, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So what is their mistake? It's a failure to take the word of God seriously. You know, these people, these leaders, they knew the Word. They they read the Word every day. They memorized huge portions of the Old Testament Scriptures, but they didn't really hear it. It didn't function as a lamp to their feet and a light to their daily paths. They had the light, but they didn't use the light. They didn't use it to really see, to to really understand, and to really make right decisions. And you know, that's kind of a warning to us as well. We put a lot of stress on the Word of God. But we also need to ask, does this Word of God really function meaningfully in terms of our daily life? Does it actually figure in our decision-making and our choices and our priorities and our goals and our hopes? A lot of homes have a lot of Bibles. But a lot of Bibles also have a lot of dust on them. When it comes to matters of lifestyle, of dating, attitude, choices, leisure time, money, And all the rest. We need to have an open Bible beside us. Open eyes to read it. And open hearts to receive it. Above all, when it comes to the salvation matter, It is the Spirit-filled Word that must direct our hearts and govern our thoughts, fill our minds, and sanctify our wills. And you know, in one sense that's clear, but that doesn't always make it easy. 
You can see that here in our text, we have the Savior pointing the crowd to His Word, and there's always the hope that this will touch them and, and rally them around Him. But it does nothing of the kind. Instead, last words are, then all the disciples deserted Him and fled. Notice, Matthew says they all made a beeline for the exit. And not even the the brightest or the best of them stayed behind. Not Peter, not James, not John, not any of them. They all flee. And the haunting words of Isaiah come to mind, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Here he is put on notice, our Savior is put on notice, that when it comes to the last part of his earthly journey, it will be have to be traveled alone. No crowd of admirers, no disciples, no family. No one will accompany him. The man of sorrows goes the way of sorrow. But then again, also in this, there is something to learn. You might say something negative and something positive. The negative, surely, in all of this, is this. Do not rely on people. When the hour of need is upon you, many will disappoint you. Look at people and they will always, sooner or later, in one way or another, fail. And it doesn't matter who it is. I don't care who it is in your life. They will never always and completely and fully live up to your expectations. And that's the negative. But thankfully, there's also the positive. And it's this. Rely on God, look to Him, call on Him, turn to Him, flee to Him. And if you do, He will never disappoint you. He is and always will be the only true and lasting refuge of His people. Our Savior now is isolated and He has to go on alone. And yet, He's not really alone. For God the Father goes with Him. And God the Father goes with all of His people. And that means you and I as well. Our God goes with us through illness, sorrow, persecution, up the hills and into the valleys of life. 
Our friends oft fail and leave us. But Jesus' faithfulness and the faithfulness of his Father endures forever. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.